Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Mati Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. A um, couple of quick announcements before we get Kiddush underway and our Sabbath going. Uh, I want to remind everyone about at the end of the month of May, Shavuot coming up. And in fact, we are at day 28. This is the fourth Sabbath of the counting of the Omer. We complete seven Sabbaths, and then the day after the seventh Sabbath is our Feast of Week celebration. We'd love to have you come and join us in Norman for that. If you want to be a part of it, it's ShavuotEvent.com. You can log in there for it. Uh, I also want to share with everybody that this summer uh, we have Camp Yeshua, our youth camp, that will be happening. And at the moment, it looks like we're going to have a full camp again and with staff and uh, looking forward to that. We always uh, make it available to you if you'd like to help sponsor a campership for a kid who uh, needs some uh, uh, money to be able to cover his registration costs. You can send a donation in and specifically designate it for camperships. It'll go into the Lynn Judah Memorial Fund and it'll help kids to go to camp. And, uh, and we would appreciate you know, anything you can do to help the kids come to camp. Camp Yeshua is a life-changing event for these youth, and we've seen the full life cycle over the years of kids come to camp, grow up, meet their future spouse, come back as junior staff, uh, married, and have children. And so we've seen the full life cycle of throughout the years of Camp Yeshua, and it's, it's, uh, the Lord has used it powerfully in a lot of youth's lives. Also, I want to remind you that we're in the cycle of the Lord's appointed times, and going into the fall, we'll have the fall holidays. And if you'd like to come and be part of the Feast of Tabernacles we host here in um, Oklahoma for people all over the nation, you can check into that at tabernaclesevent.com. I urge you to do that if you're planning, because that's a major effort on your part travel-wise, expense-wise, as well as a lot of you have to take vacation from your work. Uh, so it's a major effort for you to come, be part of it. Planning ahead always helps with that. So that's our announcements uh, for this week. Let me just mention to you that there's another broadcast that we have up available this weekend. It's the Messianic World Update. We've had some significant events happen this week that have prophetic significance for all of us as Messianic believers. If you haven't seen that broadcast, log on there, and I'll bring you up to speed on some uh, incredible events that have taken place this last week. All right, without any further ado, uh, let's have Kiddush, and we'll get our Sabbath underway. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family, and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. Shake it, 
are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Now the Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri HaGafen Amen Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Chamotzi, the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and bless you and thank you for the wonderful wives that you've given to us in our homes. Father, I thank you for the wonderful wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she takes care of our children, as she teaches and educates them, and as she takes care of the home and me. Father, I confess that I love her with all of my heart, and I pray that you would pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. I love her and thank you for the unmerited favor and grace that you have given me, Lord, through her. So I thank you, Lord, on this Shabbat, and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. And now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Amen. Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu etarunai hamvorach. Baruch Adonai hamvorach le'olam vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord, who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Micha Mocha. Micha Mocha, Ba'elim Adonai. Micha Mocha, Nedahar Ba'chudesh. No Lot O Who is 
like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you. Amen. Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Israel et ha-shabbat, la'asot et ha-shabbat l'adrotam barit olam, b'nei ovayom b'nei Israel ot'hit le'olam, k'sheshet yamim asadonai et ha-shamayim v'et ha-aret v'yom ha-shavi shabbat v'yinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you'd all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed, Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha uv'chol meodecha v'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha ha'yom alevavcha v'shinan tam l'avenecha v'tepardabam b'shiftcha b'yetcha uv'lechtcha v'derechu shakbika uv'kumika u'kershatam la'ota yadecha v'heyu la'totavot b'inenecha u'chetatam amazuzo b'techa uv'sherecha all together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
granddaughters will prophesy Your young men will see visions Your old men dream dreams I'll pour out my spirit My servants will prophesy in the heavens and signs in the earth below oh in that day yes in that day in that day yes in that day Yes, in that 
Hear these words. Hear these words. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will be saved in that day.
to the book of Leviticus, to chapter 25, where our Torah portion will begin for this week. It is entitled, Bahar on the Mount. As always, as you are opening your scripture, I'd like to do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher b'chabanu mikol ha'amim, venatan lanu et torato, baruch atah Adonai non ten ha-torah ha-amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. As I said, our Torah portion has Moses still on Mount Sinai, receiving the instructions from the Lord. We've, as we're approaching the end of the book of Leviticus here, this is the uh, second to last Torah portion here in the book. I want to talk a little bit about what we're learning from the book of Leviticus. I've gone over for many weeks now talking about how we are learning how to be holy as God is holy. We've been introduced to God, a holy God, through the book of uh, Exodus, and we learned about how he comes and he dwells in the camp 
with us. And then Leviticus starts and we're talking about the priesthood that they have to carry themselves a certain way and then we have to be holy. We have to keep ourselves clean and not defile ourselves with food or with sins or other abominations that we're not to be defiled. And then we have the, we have the holy sanctuary and all of the procedures of how we are to go and approach that in a holy and worthy manner. We have the instruction of the appointed times and we have set apart times in which God desires to dwell with us, for us to have holy convocations with one another and worship Him. We have a holy God. We have a holy priesthood. We are to be a holy people. We have holy and set apart times. Is there anything in creation that is not been covered yet? Well, in truth of fact, there is. And our Torah portion here will start to begin the instructions about commandments dealing with the land. The land of Israel, the land of Zion. Our Torah portion specifically tells us that we're still at Mount Sinai when we receive these instructions. But as we go in, as the children of Israel are to enter into the land, there are certain procedures that are and commandments associated with the land of Israel. Here it says this, we're, we're going to have the instructions for the sabbatical year, where the land every seven years is to get its rest. It's interesting here, our scripture personifies the land of Israel. A couple of weeks ago in our passage, we talked about how certain abominations among the citizens of the land, that the land could vomit out its inhabitants because of certain sins and certain abominations. And then here we're instructed that the land needs its rest. It's almost as if this land is almost like another living, breathing organism created by God. It's capable of vomiting out its inhabitants and, it's cap- and it needs rest just like we need rest each and every Sabbath. The land is to be remembered. The land has its own special place in the kingdom of God. It's interesting here. You may have heard this said before, but what you need, we're all looking for the kingdom of God, are we not? And what is it that you need to have a kingdom? There are three things that one must have to have a kingdom. One, you have to have a king. You have to have the ruler, the one who makes decrees that, that rules over the kingdom. A kingdom without a king is just dumb. You can't have a kingdom without a king. The other thing you need is you need servants. You need people who follow the decrees of the king. The ones who are a part of the kingdom and, and, and worship and follow after the leader who is the king. The last thing that you need to have a kingdom is you need a land. You need a place for the king to rule over. A place for the servants of God, servants of that kingdom, to live, to work, to labor. You must have those three things. That continuum of three things must be in place. Otherwise, you don't have a kingdom. It's similar to God himself where it's like those three things all have to come together before there is one, before there is something that is whole and together. And that's what we need to have a kingdom. We are all looking forward to the kingdom of God. And the land has its own special uh, provisions for it. That when God says that he will remember his covenant with his people, and this will go into next week's portion, uh, the last portion of the book of Leviticus, that he not only remembers his covenant with people, but he remembers his covenant with the land. I've heard another teacher say once that the land itself rejected the children of Israel and the spies when they entered into the land. The spies went into the land and, and two of them had a good heart and saw all the good, plentiful things of the land. But then ten of them, they saw only the negative. 
They were, they were fearful of the land. And that I heard the, uh, the teacher once say that it's the land itself rejected them. The land is this sort of living, breathing thing. All of the parts of the kingdom cry out for the other parts of the kingdom. The land itself, whenever the children of Israel and Jews have not dwelled in the land. Now, there's always been some, a small contingent of Jews, but it's not since 1948 have the truly a great number of the children of Israel returned back to the land. Before that time, the land of Israel was a wasteland. The land did not yield its produce. It did not respond to the people and the inhabitants of the land. But since 1948, the land of Israel has become an agricultural gem in the region. That it's the, the food that's produced and it's a land that is, that is lush and green and yields a great amount of, of, of plenty and blessing that comes from it. So much so that it feeds, agriculturally feeds the entire region and parts of Europe as well. And that the land itself has responded to the people of Israel coming back to the land. We're looking forward to the great day coming when the kingdom will all be whole and one. When God will return to the earth. And where we, all the inhabitants, will return back to the original possession. The land that was promised to our forefathers. And that we would all come together and only then will the kingdom of God be in our possession and be at hand. And we're looking forward to that time. These instructions and these commandments for the land are very important. Let me read now here at the first part of uh, chapter 25 here in Leviticus. And let us go into some of these instructions having to do with the sabbatical year for the land. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. For it is a year of rest for the land, and the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you. For you, for your male, your female servants, your hired man, the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. When we come here to this instruction, and you to go and you were to look and study and see, what does Judaism have to say about this passage? You know, as we've gone through the book of Leviticus, I may have uh, picked on mainstream Christianity for cutting and pasting certain parts of the Bible. As we went to Leviticus 11 and we talked about how we are to keep kosher. And that modern day Christians, they don't keep kosher. They've kind of, they've set that aside. You can't take away their precious bacon and they don't keep those commandments. However, when it comes to them being in an argument with somebody about homosexuality, they're very quick to quote Leviticus chapter 18 as if that verse is as applicable today as it once was. And so they kind of cut and paste some of the things and they they follow certain commandments and disregard others. With this commandment and this Torah portion, Judaism is the one who has not followed or kept these commandments properly. If you were to go to any uh, Jewish source and, and, and ask or study, what is the deal with the sabbatical year or the jubilee year, which we'll receive instruction for as well? You will go and you will find and they say, well, we don't really recognize the sabbatical year. 
We don't recognize the Jubilee year. We've had calendars for years, and we know we have, we have all of our Jewish calendars, and we know and we follow the commandments here in this way. Nowhere is there ever a recognition of the sabbatical year. What year is the sabbatical year? We don't know which one it is. We don't know when the count went off or what is truly the seventh year that was counted from original, originally when the children of Israel were in the land. We don't know when the Jubilee year is, and it is not recognized ever as the years turn and as years go by it is never recognized whether it is a sabbatical year or a year of jubilee the land has never gotten its due when it comes to this commandment there is no record in all of history that this was ever kept in fact when they entered in to the land of israel jeremiah chapter 29 talks about how that the babylonian captivity of 70 years was, was the punishment because the children of Israel had been in the land 490 years and had never kept the sabbatical year. So the children of Israel went into captivity and the land got its rest. It was due 70 years of rest, 70 years of sabbatical years, that it should have gotten its rest and it did not. So the children of Israel were vomited out of the land and the land got its rest. These commandments are very important when it comes to the possession of the land. This might be the reason why there had been, there's been so many years in the history of time that, that the land has not been occupied by the children of Israel. Even though it's the promised land, even though it is the possession of the children of Israel, there's been many years when it has not been that possession. That's because the land is due its rest, and we still have yet to learn, and there's no record of how this, of this commandment ever being kept properly or appropriately. I imagine there was maybe some farmer along the way that, that attempted to do it, but as a whole, as, a, as an entire nation, it was never kept. Now, the question is, of course, then this is the natural question for us as we receive this commandment and we says, okay, so if you're a, a farmer, you're supposed to take the seventh year and you're not supposed to sow anything. That's kind of hard to do. This is our livelihood. This is what we eat off of. This is what this this begs some very natural questions here. What what are we supposed to do in that seventh year? Well, the first thing is is that you get to have a break. You get to have a rest. Imagine that that every seven years you did not have to work. You did not have to labor in the same way. You could spend that year with your family. You could spend that year studying the Word. You could spend that year getting closer to God in the process. It's the same thing we do on the Sabbath each and every week that we're commanded to rest. We take that time to spend with our families. We take that time to get closer to God. We take that time to pray to our Lord. Imagine having an entire year to do that. Now the question is on faith, what what are we going to do? What are we going to eat? Our passage talked about that the Sabbath produce of the land. What is that exactly? Well, I think that gets explained here later on. Like I said, the natural question for somebody is like, well, what are we going to eat? How are we going to do this? Well, if you go ahead in the chapter to um, let's start at verse 18, the scripture says this. So you shall observe my statutes and my commandments and perform them. You will dwell in the land in safety and securely. Then the land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and dwell there safely. Verse 20. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? So, since we cannot sow nor gather our produce. That's a very natural question. Verse 21. Then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year, until its produce comes in. You shall eat of the old harvest. Wow. 
What an amazing blessing that would be that God is going to, that the sixth year is going to yield enough produce for three years. Now this kind of goes back to the story and the commandment about the manna. That the manna was put on the ground, the bread from heaven. The children of Israel were given some specific instructions about the manna. That one, when they were to gather just what they needed for the day, that they were not to keep any left over or it would spoil. They tested the Lord on this, and the next day somebody kept some manna left over. They thought they'd hold on to a little bit, stash a little away, and it was then moldy. It was infested with worms. It had to be thrown out. Couldn't be eaten. And so then, we, so that was very clearly, it's like, okay, we have to go on faith. We have to eat all of our fill in the one day, and then trust and have faith that it will be there the next day. And lo and behold, it was. What a blessing that is. So then the sixth day of the week rolls around and they're together double the amount to carry over to the next day. Wait a minute. You're telling me that this portion I can carry over to the next day and it's not going to spoil? I mean, the, we already saw the one guy that it spoiled that when he carried it over. Or we're going to trust that it's going to happen? Sure enough, the next day, the manna had not been spoiled and then you had food to eat on the seventh day. You know people had tested this or questioned this or something, that they did, ate it all and they didn't keep anything over. And so then the next day they're like, okay, we're going to gather manna again, right? No, on the Sabbath day there was no manna to gather. We have to follow these commandments. The Lord, this was a miracle that the manna didn't spoil going from the sixth day to the seventh day. But any other day of the week it did. And that it was to be, that was the blessing and the provision. And it took faith every single day to do. Just like anyone in the land, it take, this would have taken faith to the farmer or the one who grew and planted vineyards or, or orchards. And they had to trust that these, were, that these provisions were going to happen. Imagine that. That this would have taken a miracle. That the food didn't spoil from one year to the next. That you're telling me the old harvest would not spoil and it would stay fresh all the way until the ninth year? All the way for three years? What a blessing that would be. Then the produce that's yielded in the first year, that's just a benefit. That's just a, that's just picks you up and that, what a wonderful blessing that harvest is to kind of, you got food for two years at that point, ready to go into the next set of six years. What a blessing this would have been if this is what, is what it takes. Now I believe this would have taken faith. That first time that the sixth year rolled around, did it yield enough produce for, for three years? I think it's possible that it didn't. Because I think God knew the hearts of the people and knew that they weren't going to keep the sabbatical year. It's also possible that it did, and then they squandered it. It's like, wow, look at all this thing. And they sold it all and did this and did not retain it for the possession they needed. So when the seventh year came, they didn't have anything and they didn't save it over and they didn't and they had to then plant again. And that's how they failed to keep the sabbatical year. This is what this would have taken faith. This would have taken a miracle. But can you imagine what a blessing it would have been had we kept this commandment? Our instructions continue on with the year of Jubilee, where it explains that we're to count seven sets of seven years, 49 years, seven sabbatical years, counting then to the 50th year where a new trumpet would be sounded and we'd have the year of Jubilee. And what this was, was that this was the year of return. That all the possessions that belonged to anyone, that people would be able to return back to the land where they possessed. Or that any possessions that they had sold would be returned back to them. What an amazing blessing this would have been. And now this would have been another year. This would have been another sabbatical year beyond that 49th year as well. It's amazing that the 
uh, yield from the sixth year every single year was good enough for three years, then you'd be covered. You'd be covered through the Jubilee year as well had you kept and retained all of the yield from the sixth year or the 48th year in that case. So all of these things, so, so that would have got, been taken care of as well. But then this year would have been a rejoicing year. A year of rejoicing where there'd be a family reunion of sorts. Everyone would return back to their possessions. And that this was something that if somebody would get to experience at least once in their lifetime. At least once. Maybe you did it at a, at a younger age in your life. Anyone who lived over 50 years got to see one. Maybe you were lucky enough to see two in your lifetime. You saw one early on in your life. And as you grew up, you grew up in the land of your ancestors. And then as time went on and you moved away and families moved away and possessions were sold, you'd then get to see the great day coming when you'd all return back to, those, to your own possession, your own land. See, because this was to prepare the children of Israel for going into the land of Israel. They were all then given a possession, a part of the land. And that those things were to remain with the family at all times. Now, it's possible though that some people would get poor at times. And that they would have to sell their possessions. They, they, they would end up in poverty and they'd have to sell those possessions. But then they'd always have the time and opportunity to look forward to the return. When, they were, when all those possessions were returned back to them. Now, there's something else, a bit of instruction we need to understand, that this was not necessarily, the Jubilee year was not about the forgiveness of debts. In truth of fact, the forgiveness of debts was supposed to take place every seven years. To get more of this instruction, if you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 15, we have this instruction talking about debts being canceled every seven years. It says this, At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or of his brother because it is called the Lord's release. Of a foreigner you may require it, but you shall not give up your claim to what is owed by your brother. Every seven years, debts were to be released. If you had loaned something, this is the difference between the Jubilee year and the year of release, the sabbatical year, is that if you sold a possession then it was returned back at the year of Jubilee. But if you had simply loaned something out, if you had been a creditor, to credit something to them, as when seven years came, you were to release that debt. You were to release them of requiring them to, to pay it back. And this was a decision that one could make. If you were near to the year of release, you could decide, are you going to give them what, what they need? Knowing that the year of release is coming soon and that you should, you should still give it to them. In fact, the passage in Deuteronomy 15 continues on talking about being generous to the poor. Starting at verse 7, it says this, If there is any poor among the brethren, within any of your gates of your land, the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide and willingly lend to him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Beware lest the wicked thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. You're not to look at him, see that the year of release is coming, and then say, no, I'm not going to give it to him. No, you are to give to those that are in need. This commandment was not to be for one to take advantage of. You weren't supposed to just gather all this money, take all this money from all these creditors, and knowing that in seven years you'd be, you'd, you'd be released from it. Ha ha, you got all the money and you get to take it. Was that the goal of this? Of course not. Because one... If you became that person, then you would be known in your community as the cheater. 
Would they ever lend to you again after that? Of course they would not. You would become the poor of your brethren and you would not have, and you'd have the reputation of being the one who is not, whose name is not good. Whose name, who, who, who doesn't repay their debts. And then no one would loan to you. This is not a system for one to take advantage of. This is a system to ensure that whenever anybody going through life, if the poor was in need, that they could, it could be sufficient for them. And even if they didn't have the means to repay, the generosity of their brethren would be sufficient and would help them. This is not to be taken advantage of. And it's not for one, thing, one person to lord over another person. But the problem is, is in the history of Israel, brethren started charging interest to their brethren. They started making it a game that creditors were, they, they started lording over the poor and that they would only give some but then require interest back to be paid. And that's how this commandment was never kept properly, to have a year of release. This was so that we helped one another. If you go back to our Torah portion, back to Leviticus 25, it says this in verse 35. It says, if you're, one of your brethren becomes poor, falls into poverty, poverty among you, you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner. That he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him. But fear your God and your brother may live with you. You should not lend him your money for usury. Nor lend him your food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. To give you the land of Canaan. And to be your God. This was so that we could help one another. This is so that we could, we, we could lend. and do, do not close your hand to your brother that might be in need. Because we have a system in place where debts can be forgiven every seven years. What a blessing that would be. It would ensure that there was never any inflation. It would ensure that there was never any Because everything would go back to zero and be square at every seven years. And then as creditors could, could give and, and could help and those that were in need. And then even if somebody did become so poor they had to sell many of their possessions. They still had a jubilee year to look forward to. Now, this continues on. There's more instructions here in our passage, specifically having to do with redemption. See, what happens is this, is if one of, a, if one of the people had to sell some of their possessions, sell some of their land, there was still a way that if they were capable of it, or a brother or a near of kin to them could redeem it back for their brother. They didn't have to wait until the year of Jubilee to redeem it. It could be purchased. It could be, it could be recovered back and brought back into the family here. So now going back into Leviticus chapter 25, let's read it verse 23. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in the land, in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the number of years since the sale and restore the remainder to the man whom he sold, that he may return to his possession. But if he is not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee, it shall be released, and he shall return to his possession. This was an amazing blessing, and this is, again, our society and the things that we see in our lives. We, we don't associate with these things because these are, not, these are not stipulations in the modern-day society that we live. We don't see these things taking place. But if we did, imagine what the blessing it is that, you, that anything that you ever had in your possession, it remained with you because you knew that provision came from God. The land where you live came from God. 
And that you can, you could sell it if you became poor, but there was a way to restore it back to you. This would have been a wonderful thing. This actually ties directly into the story of Ruth, from the book of Ruth here in our Bible. And as we approach Shavuot here in the midst of the county of the Yomer, where we have that same pattern of, of 49, we count 49, seven weeks, and then we count to the 50th day. There's a parallel to that and the year of Jubilee, of course. It is traditional to actually read the book of Ruth on Shavuot. Now, as we're approaching this, I actually want to tie it into our Torah portion here when it comes to redemption. The book of Ruth is only four chapters. It's a wonderful read. I encourage anybody to read it. And so, But let me sum up what is in that story in the book of Ruth. What we had is we had a family from the tribe of Judah, a man by the name of Elimelech, and he had a wife named Naomi. And what it is, there was a great famine in the land, and he had to sell his possession and move to the land of Moab. Now the story goes, they had two sons. They married two women of the land of Moab, one of them being Ruth. And what happened, unfortunately, is the men of the family died. The father, Elimelech, died, and so did the two sons. So what we had is we then had Naomi, and we had her two daughters-in-law. One of them uh, named Orpah, she decided to stay in the land of Moab when they went to go return back to the land. But then we have the famous wording from Ruth that said, Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people will be my people. And Ruth returns back with Naomi to the land. And they come into the land, and they are poor. And during the time of the barley harvest, which is actually also around the time of Passover, so there might be some interesting parallels there, Ruth goes, and as was acceptable for the poor to do, to go reap some of the corners of the edges of the field so that she could have food to eat. She was the poor, she brought the food, and so that her and Naomi could, could have food to eat. Naomi, with her counsel, said, go and, go and attract the attention of Boaz. He is a near of kin to us, and let him stay with him, his servants, and, and go and, and speak to him, that he might take kindness and, and take mercy upon you. And that's exactly what happened. Moses saw Ruth, he asked, inquired about her, and then he said, don't let any of the servants, don't let anyone um, uh, not be generous to her. And make sure that she has food to eat and she was allowed to gather much more food in that way. And that what the story came to the attention of Boaz as to exactly who she was, who Naomi was, and that we needed to restore the possessions back to this family. Because remember, they had sold their possessions. So, to do this right and appropriately, we needed to redeem the land that belonged to the family. To Elimelech, that, it, that the land remain in the family there. However, there was somebody nearer of kin to Naomi than Boaz was. So to do everything right and appropriate, he went to the gates of the city and he met with this man. We don't know what his name was. But he said this, and he says, Would you be willing to redeem the land of our brother? He, he died, he passed away, he had to sell his possession. Would you be willing to redeem the land? And the nearer of kin, he said, of course. I'll take another field, I'll g- gain more inheritance, gain more wealth of all these things with the field. He thought that would be great. Boaz then explained this, and he said, Ah, but it, the field must come also with Ruth. From the land of Moab. She had married into the family. She had no son. And to truly restore the family back to the place and restore all the possessions back to him, she needs to be married. She needs to have a son. And the other man said, well, wait a minute. That would harm my inheritance. That would, then the money has to go to him and go to her and go to the family. Go to, I, can't, I wanted to get the field and reap the inheritance there, but not have to have more mouths to feed and, and, and to help them more. And Boaz says, if you will not do it, I will. 
And he says, go, by all means. So but this is the story of how Boaz became the redeemer of this family. And he took Ruth as a wife. And he played the role of being the redeemer, restoring back the possessions of the land. He took her, her as his wife. And then she gave birth to a man by the name of Obed, which then is the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David. That through Boaz's act of redemption, we got the entire line and lineage of kings, of the kings of David, and hence, the lineage of the Messiah as well. And all of that ties back to this story of redemption, about redeeming and restoring back what belongs to somebody. And that's the, the connection that we have here. This was the purpose of this. This was the purpose, to be a blessing to them, that every time somebody may, had sold, may have to sell their possession, that we were then looking for a redeemer, somebody that would restore us back and make us whole once again. That's what we can learn from this portion and this story about redemption. And that's what all of these commandments had to do. Is so that one, again, this would be an amazing society to live in. That we, nothing that even if you had lost, even if you became poor, there was those that were generous and debts were forgiven every seven years. And if you couldn't, and every 50 years, all of our possessions that belonged to us were restored back to us. What an amazing blessing that would be. One other thing I want to point out here in our Torah portion as we come to a close, here at the end of chapter 25, starting with verse 47, let me read there. Now, if a sojourner or stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or the sojourner close to you or to a member of the stranger's family. Verse 48. After he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him or anyone who is near of kin to him in his family may redeem him or if he's able, he may redeem himself. Thus he shall reckon with him who bought him. The price of his release shall be according to the number of years from the years he was sold until the year of Jubilee. So not only if you had a possession and then you had to sell it and that could be restored back to you. There also is this instruction of if one had to sell themselves to a stranger, to a foreigner among in the land. And that if there was one nearer of kin to him, that he could go and he could purchase him up out of that possession, that slavery, if you will. And that if one is near of kin, they could redeem him according to an appropriate price. Now let's take us now to our modern day and where we all sit here in the world. We've been scattered into the nations. We've been exiled. We've been, we, we found ourselves in, in subject to the rule of other lands and other kings and other places. And we do not dwell securely in the land of Israel. We all hope and desire to. We all wish that we could all go back to that place and that, that we, can, we, we can go and be a part of the kingdom of God and, we, and go back to the land of Zion and the place of our forefathers and that we can worship him there. We all desire that, but no, we're, we're scattered here amongst the nations. What we need is we need a redeemer. We need somebody who's near of kin to us, who will buy us and purchase us out of that slavery, if you will. That is the story of redemption and that is what it means to be redeemed when we talk about the Messiah being our Redeemer. That we all find ourselves and we are of the family of God. We are all equal heirs to the blessings and, 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 and all the, the inheritance that God has to be a part of His family. And that Yeshua is our Redeemer, our near of kin, who has purchased us up out of that place. 
And our scripture says here that it says, Thus you shall reckon with him who bought him. That's why the person being redeemed owes their life and the debt and the payment back to the person who redeemed him. That's why when we've been, been redeemed by Yeshua, that's why we owe all of our blessings and our, we owe our lives to him. We have to be reckoned to him. The purchase price that was paid for us to be redeemed out of the land, we have to reckon with him. And of course, we're all looking forward to some future year of Jubilee, some future year when all will be restored back to us. That it's also, at the end of the Jubilee, or at the Jubilee, there was also the forgiveness of debts. And then there also was the return of all of those possessions. And we're looking forward to a future day, a future year, when all possessions will return, return back to our forefathers. That we can dwell in the land of our ancestors. That all debts have been forgiven. And that we owe our lives to the Redeemer who bought us up out of that place. What a great and glorious day that would be. Understanding how God and how the Messiah has redeemed us up out of that place. That's what we can learn from these instructions. As we look and we can see and read them and it's like this has to do with the land of Israel. I don't live in the land of Israel. I'm not a farmer. I'm not any of these things. Why are these commandments for you? This is not a passage for us to, to be cutting and pasting as many people have done before with the commandments of God choosing which ones to follow and which ones. The, at the heart of these instructions is the methodology in which we are redeemed because we owe a debt. We owe a payment. We find ourselves scattered in the nations. We've all been, been sold into slavery and find ourselves in all the nations. And we are looking for a great and glorious day when we can then pay that back and, or that all will be forgiven of us. And we will look to our Redeemer and say thank you and reap the blessings. Of that day. What an amazing thing we can learn here in this passage when we talk about the land of Israel. We're looking forward to the day when we can be in the kingdom of God, when we can be in the land. God has returned. He is our king and we are the servants of the land. We pray all the time for his kingdom to come very soon. So let that be our prayer this week as we go and look at these instructions and we pray, Lord, that you would continue your provisions for us on this Sabbath day. And for the many more Sabbaths to come, whether it be a weekly Sabbath or a yearly Sabbath, and we look forward to a great year of Jubilee at the end of the age when we will be in the kingdom of God. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your teaching, your instruction. We thank you, Lord, for everything that you do and teach us here in the book of Leviticus, Lord. We thank you for these instructions. Father, I pray that we would remember the land, Lord, as you remember the land. That, Father, it was due its Sabbaths, it is due its rest, Lord. And, Lord, we have been scattered into the nations, Lord. The land has, has released us, it's vomited out its inhabitants, Lord. And we desire to return back to the land, Lord. To the land of our forefathers, Lord. We pray and we look forward to the day when all of the possessions of the children of Israel could be returned back to our ancestors. To us, Lord. And may you remember your covenant with us if we confess the iniquities and the sins of our forefathers, Lord. Father, I pray and we look forward to that day. So we give you all honor and glory and thanks, Lord, for being our Redeemer. For purchasing us up out of the slavery that we find ourselves in. And we pray that you would continue to encourage us and strengthen us as we look at your instructions, Lord, through the rest of our Torah cycle and as we soon will close out the book of, of Leviticus. So we love you and bless you and thank you on the Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. And now the blessing after the Torah. 
Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Nathan Lanu Torah Temet V'chai Elam Netabetocheinu Baruch Ata Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. If you would uh, turn with me to the book of Luke, the fourth chapter, and put your finger there at verse 16. We have a short reading portion for the uh, Brit HaRashah this week that goes with our Torah portion. It's from verse 16 through verse 21, just a couple of verses, but they're very powerful, and you'll see why they tie in uh, to our Torah portion. Uh, let me read the passage to you. It's only a few verses, and then we'll begin to address why it's uh, the reading that goes with this Torah portion, as well as what is being said here. Uh, beginning at verse 16, Luke chapter 4, And it came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Um, it's interesting that we are having a New Testament portion that goes with it, and actually we're really talking about what Isaiah had to say. And Yeshua is explaining what Isaiah had to say. The reason why this portion of reading ties into Bihar, our Torah portion, is because Bihar talks about the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee, or Yovel. And this reference to where he says to, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, verse 19, we actually believe that when Yeshua began his ministry, it probably was a sabbatical year. It was one of the years in the seven-year count. It was the tradition, and this is usually how this used to work, uh, that rabbis, those who could mentor uh, young men and teach them, on the sabbatical year, um, they would come and travel with the mentor. And he would select those that he's willing to put his time in with them. And so that was kind of the custom in those days, that a teacher, a rabbi, would gather up uh, certain individuals who would travel with them that year, and they would study with that man for that year. Yeshua essentially did the same thing. It was in this year that he went and gathered up young men, uh, to be his disciples, and he trained and taught them. And the bulk of much of what he taught the disciples probably was in this first year, in this sabbatical year, the favorable year of the Lord. That's the reference to it. And we have him here at Nazareth reading from the prophet Isaiah and taking direct application from this passage of Scripture to himself. 
And we're going to have to address that uh, a little bit more because that is highly, highly significant. Uh, when we talk about uh, Moses and the prophets and how they proclaimed uh, about the Messiah, and you've heard me say many times before, Moses is the greatest prophet of the Messiah himself. Yeshua said, had you believed Moses, you know, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. And, and he also said, but if you don't believe the words of Moses, how will you believe or understand my words? John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47. There's a direct connection between Moses and the prophets to the Messiah. This one that the Messiah just read is about as direct as you can possibly get. Even the Messiah himself, Yeshua said, hey, that's me, and these words are fulfilled within your hearing. Here I am. What a profound thing to say in the, in the hometown of where he grew up, Nazareth. In fact, the very first, very next reaction is they're looking at him, and they're wondering, and they go, well, wait a minute, isn't, isn't this the son of Joseph, the carpenter? I mean, you know, this guy? Um, the word Messiah... The definition of it means the anointed one. And so when he starts off and says, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. That's as a direct uh, uh, application as you can take in Scripture. You know, it's talking about the anointed one, what the Messiah is going to do. And he stands up and he says, yep. That's me. These words are now fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, an incredible, profound statement. And for some reason, he decided to choose Nazareth for this. Part of it, we know, is because if uh, you come from your hometown, it's very difficult <laughs> for the people who saw you, saw you grow up to kind of accept the role of who you are and, and what you become when you come to adulthood. And they were struggling with, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son? You know, what, what, do, you, what do you mean he's the anointed one? If I can just step back, maybe you've had the same experience of, and share just a little personal anecdote of my own life. When I was a young, young boy and I was going to school, I grew up in a small community called Abilene, Kansas. Wonderful place. Um, and if you have a chance to go visit there, Yada, you know, there's the Eisenhower Museum there in Old Abilene Town. It was where the Cowboys really got started in America and, and um, all of that. I grew up in that town. It wasn't a very large town. And I was uh, what they call a late bloomer. I was small for my age. And, uh, in fact, when I graduated from high school, I was a whopping uh, 141 pounds and all of five foot seven inches tall. And um, two years later, I'm 19 years old, and I'm in shape, and 215 pounds, and 5'11". And I came back on leave, and the people in the town didn't recognize me. Uh, friends of the family did, you know, didn't, didn't think it was me. In fact, when I went back for my high school reunion at the 10-year mark, they thought I was one of the spouses that belonged to some, some other classmate. They didn't, they didn't recognize me. Um, from it. And you form an opinion of a person when you see them grow up in, in their youth, you form a certain opinion, and if all of a sudden that changes as you become an adult, well, you finish growing up in my case or whatever, um, why, it, it's kind of shocking. And I will tell you, 
my own classmates have had had to come to terms with that this little nerdy kid uh, that grew up with them was one of the smallest kids is is now this messianic rabbi and I'm all over the internet and you know people know me all over the nation and around the world and I'm this little kid from Abilene and I'm sure they can just look at me and they go well isn't this the son of the Bill Judah the sign painter you know they're, they're trying to trying to figure out what happened and so there's this natural thing that the Messiah is going back to Nazareth and he's having that same natural thing happen to him and they were struggling with him he makes a very a powerful statement about that where he says um, Verse 24, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. A prophet is without honor, is in his own hometown. And the reason is because they've already got an idea as to who you are, and it's very hard to dislodge them from that thinking or their opinion of you when you were growing up, when you were uh, being raised uh, there in your hometown. And he was acknowledging that and speaking to that uh, as he came to share the testimony that he um, is the Messiah. Now, I want to go back to Isaiah chapter 61, which is where he's quoting from, because there's a couple of things he didn't say that comes from that passage that's very significant, as well as for what he did say. So if you would, go with me to Isaiah chapter 61 now. And verse 1 reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. But he stops mid-sentence. That's not a full sentence at the end. He stops in the middle of the sentence. What does the rest of the sentence say? And the day of vengeance of our God. Now, we know the Messiah has two comings. He first comes and does the work of redemption. And then he comes and does the work of atonement and judgment. He didn't come to judge the first time. He came to save and to seek the lost. This time, when he comes back, he comes back to deal with his enemies. And establish his kingdom. And that verse is proclaiming that's what the Messiah does both of those things. He proclaims the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. But because of where he was at and the time that he was in, he was showing us, I'm only here to do the first part. I'm not here to pronounce judgment upon the world. I'm here to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. To bring a spiritual rest to his people to proclaim the good news. And by the way, the good news that I'm referring to is the same one that Paul refers to that God spoke to Abraham. I'm not talking about the New Testament church definition of that. I'm talking about specifically um, when God said to Abraham, you know, that in his seed would all the families of the earth be blessed. And Paul emphasizes the seed is singular, it's a reference to the Messiah. That the Messiah would come from, um, the, from the descendants of Abraham, and he was the one who was going to bless all the families of the earth. That's, Paul says, this is when the gospel was preached by God to Abraham. 
And so when it says that he comes here to preach the gospel, he's coming here on the same subject that God spoke to Abraham about. It's not something new. It's not a, a complete different thing. Now, I mention that because at the beginning of our reading, uh, one of the things that it tells us about Yeshua of Nazareth is that when he went back to his hometown, that it came Sabbath, not Sunday, it came Sabbath, and was his custom, he went to the synagogue on Sabbath. Now, it's really fascinating to me to read this passage of Scripture out of Luke because it's just the first of many that you'll find in the New Testament. It was the custom of Yeshua to keep the Sabbath. It was the custom of his disciples to keep the Sabbath. It was the custom of the Apostle Paul, according to the book of Acts, to keep the Sabbath. So where did we get this idea that we're supposed to do Sunday worship? Well, it didn't come from the New Testament. I can assure you that. It's one of the church fathers' customs, which they have substituted for what the commandments of the Lord say. Now, if I stepped on your toes, I, uh, I apologize for me, but, but that's the Lord's position on this. That is what the scripture says. And furthermore, as you get into the specific words of this, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners. What in the world is he talking about there? He's talking about the scattered of Israel. God scattered the children of Israel. The northern kingdom was scattered to the nations and assimilated, lost their identity. Judah later was scattered by the Roman siege on Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the world. And only in this generation have we seen the house of Judah begin to make their way back to the land. In fact, praise the Lord. This year is the 70th anniversary of the modern state of Israel. But we're still waiting for the northern kingdom, the house of Ephraim, to be brought back. And this is one of the great prophecies of the Messiah and his redemption. If you really sit down with a Jewish rabbi and ask him sincerely, and he answers you sincerely, and you ask, why is it that you will not accept the Messiahship of Yeshua of Nazareth? Why is it you won't believe that he's the Messiah? They will give you a very specific answer. And the answer they will give is, he didn't bring back the scattered of Israel. He didn't bring back the northern kingdom, which is what this, this verse is talking about, where he talks about binding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners, because the exile of the northern kingdoms throughout the nations, they are considered to be captives and prisoners. They were cast away from the land, and they became subject to their enemies. And there's a, it's just like uh, when the children of Israel were in Egypt. We referred to them, they were slaves. They were captives in Egypt. It was a, they first walked down there at the, at the behest of Joseph, but the new Pharaoh showed up and he enslaved them. And the children of Israel have been cast out of the land. This is uh, many years. And everybody's looking for the final redemption. When the Messiah is going to bring all the exiles back. When... The rabbis and Judaism didn't see Yeshua of Nazareth bring all of the scattered of Israel back. 
Well, they said, well, he can't be the Messiah. He didn't fulfill the prophecy. Oh, contraire. That prophecy about bringing the scattered exiles back is associated with when God comes for the day of vengeance. It wasn't when the Messiah came to do the work of redemption. They're clearly two distinct great works of God. In fact, it's pictured in a Sabbath menorah. For those of you who don't know it, there's actually names for the candles. And um, so if you have two candles for Sabbath, the first one's called creation, the other one's called redemption. If you have three, it's creation, redemption, and restoration. And restoration is speaking to bringing the scattered exiles back. They are three separate works of God, just like creation is a separate work from redemption, which is a separate work from restoration. Now, um, the, my Jewish brethren don't think that redemption and restoration has taken place. They combine the two. My Christian brethren, they think redemption has taken place and forget about restoration. We'll just meld it in. You know, because it talks about restoring Israel. And by the way, that doesn't follow the party line for the church. So they just skip over those prophecies so they don't want to hear them. But here's the Messiah specifically making reference of those prophecies very directly. And if we understand what Moses and the prophets have said, then we'll understand what he's talking about. But if you don't believe the words of Moses, how will you believe or understand my words? And he's making this prophecy his direct words. If we're going to have understanding of it, we have to go back to the original intent and the original teaching of Moses and the prophets to be able to understand what Yeshua is talking about. Because he's directly speaking to it. Now, what most people, Christians, do is they look at this uh, scripture here and they say, okay, he's the anointed one. Okay, that's it. Forget it. Uh, wonderful. You know, we cherry-pick the piece or phrase out of the prophets that the Messiah is talking about. But I want to take you back to Isaiah 61 because there's a whole lot more to what the Scripture has to say in this prophecy. When he gave us that first part, he was just talking about what was taking place at that day when he came to do the work of redemption. Here is what else is part of it, especially when we talk about restoration. So going back to Isaiah 61, let me begin again in the middle of verse 2. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former dev devastations, repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Some foreigners will be your farmers and your dressers. I could go on a little bit further, but essentially, it's make this prophecy makes a shift. It starts off speaking to a singular person, the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. But then it shifts to the people who are going to be in his kingdom. And they are referred to, 
that they are mourning and they have to be comforted. And he talks about giving them a garland. He talks about a mantle of praise. By the way, for those of you who may not know this, this talit, uh, this talit that we wear, it's, it's a mantle. And when you praise the Lord with one of these on, it's called the mantle of praise. It's called a mantle of praise. And so here's the Messiah talking about the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. And he says there's going to be this people, this plural group, that will then be called oaks of righteousness. Plural, oaks of righteousness. We're not talking about one Messiah. We're talking about those that belong to the Messiah now. And they are going to be part of that second part about the day of God's vengeance, proclaiming the day of God's vengeance. And they, too, will be anointed with the Spirit of the Lord to carry such a message. And in this day, I submit to you, as we look at the the world around us, we look specifically at this generation of whom we are right now. We can see very clearly, this this is not tough interpretation. We can see many of the signs and a host of prophecies being fulfilled within our hearing today. One of my favorites is from the prophet Daniel, who talks about that last generation as being many uh, will travel to and fro. Knowledge will increase. There are three prophecies there. That the last generation is to be a very large group of people, many. That they are supposed to have an increase in technology. Knowledge will increase. And they are supposed to have the ability to move to and fro like no other people has before. I submit to you, those are, this generation is the only one that's ever experienced such a thing. In fact, I think the present world population is something over 7 billion people at the moment on the earth. Um, Back a few years ago, like in the late 90s, while we passed 6 billion people. At that moment, when we passed 6 billion people, we now have more people alive today on the earth in this generation than have ever existed on the earth from creation up to this generation. We truly are a unique generation. Many of us, more, more than 50%, the people who ever lived in the entire history of the world are alive in this generation today. That makes this generation very unique, just as the prophecy said. I don't need to explain to you about how technology has changed. I mean, I can't even keep up with it anymore, you know. Um, and I have a technical background. Um, and other people can't keep up with it. Knowledge is increasing and doubling you know, on, a, on an unbelievable pace. And on top of that, look at the way we travel today. Just go back one generation and look to the, the, the way our parents and grandparents used to travel. They were just beginning to enjoy the pleasures of an automobile and an airplane. We today, they're so commonplace to us that we don't even give a thought to them anymore. Um... I saw I saw a uh, couple of policemen with a radar gun in my neighborhood, and they were 
radaring, you know, people driving through the neighborhood, make sure they're not driving too fast. And I thought to myself as I was coming to teach, I said, you know, um, a generation ago, the cops didn't do that because <laughs> cars didn't go that fast and nobody did that. You know, we didn't we didn't have all the traffic laws we have today, but we've had to as a result of the increase of the way we travel to and fro. Truly, I submit to you. That's just one example. I truly believe we're the last generation. We are that generation that the prophet spoke of, that we are the ones to be anointed to proclaim the day of God's vengeance, to say, behold, here is your God, as Isaiah said in chapter 40. And that connects this generation back to what the Messiah is saying there. Because the Messiah says there are certain things that are going to be given to us. Um, let me share just another personal testimony with you. When I started uh, and began the work of Lionel Lamb Ministries, it was my wife, two kids, and one computer. I didn't have any endorsement from anybody, you know. I, you know, the Lord told me to walk away from my engineering career, cash in all my retirement I'd been accumulating, and start Lionel Lamb Ministries. And I remember the first day that I, uh, that the ministry was officially started. I was at my house, and I was in the shower that morning and taking a shower. And, and you know, sometimes I'll talk to the Lord while I'm in the shower. Um, and I asked the Lord, I said, okay, Lord, this is the first day. Uh, what is the first thing that you want me to do? What is the first thing you want this ministry to do? Clear as a bell. I mean, as clear as I am talking to you right now, the Lord spoke right to me and said, make anointing oil. Now, you've got to understand me. You know, I'm, I'm coming out of this. My spiritual baggage is I'm a good Baptist, okay? And, um, you, know, you know, the type where you don't clap and you don't raise your hands and worship and you don't, certainly don't dance, okay? And you certainly don't do those things with the Lord. Uh, and we don't go around anointing everybody with oil. You know what I'm saying? And so right off the bat, that's the first thing he tells me to do. So without hesitation, I say, I've got to go find out what this is about. And so I study about essential oils. And I study the, the, the scripture that talks about the recipe for the anointing oil that was used in the temple, of which you're forbidden from making the exact recipe except for the priests. And so I basically took the items from uh, the recipe that's given in Scripture, changed one item. So it's not the exact same thing. I got the essential oils and I blended them together and I came up with a, a formula for making an anointing oil. So it's, it starts with olive oil and adds some cinnamon to it and adds frankincense to it and some almond uh, stuff to it. And it's a very pleasant uh, oil. And I got the bottles for it, and I began to blend it and make it and put it in the bottles, made a label for it, anointing oil. And once I got done, I then asked the Lord, I said, why did you, why did you have me do that? Because quite honestly, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And the Lord took me to this passage. He took me to this thing about... Um, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. 
One of the things I know that's going to happen to the last generation is they're going to go through this period of time called the Great Tribulation. This three and a half year period of time where God pours out judgments upon the world. Last chance, if you will, to repent and turn to him before he returns and brings judgment upon the world. Not upon us. We get delivered out of the judgment. But it's going to be a very difficult time. And according to the prophecies, this is when the scattered exiles are gathered up. This is when the final restoration of the whole house of Jacob takes place. When he'll gather his people out of the nations and bring them to the kingdom. At the same time, he's defeating his enemies and coming back and setting his throne up with us here on the earth from Jerusalem. And one of the things that I've, I've sensed and understood from the Lord is this is going to be a tough time. We're going to get measured, you know, by the Lord. Somewhat similar to what happened to our ancestors when they came out of Egypt and they had to go through 40 years of the wilderness. God specifically says in Deuteronomy 8, I suffered you to be hungry. I suffered you to be thirsty so that I could prove to you and show to you a man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What an incredible lesson they had to be given. Which, by the way, we're supposed to learn from. We are supposed to understand those trials and tribulations they went through were lessons for us. Why would we need such a lesson? Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, such will fall on those at the end of the ages. That would be the last generation. Something similar is going to take place. We are going to go through trials and persecuted, and we will have to escape, survive, and endure those days. And Messiah says those who endure will be saved. And he will save his people out of the midst of it. A lot of people don't like the subject of the Great Tribulation. That's not the scenario they want to go through. I, by the way, I agree with them. I don't want to go through it either. But the prophecy says we will. The Lord had me make oil. Anointing oil. Oil of gladness. You know what it's going to be used for? When the tribulation saints have come to the end of it. And they can't do it anymore. When they've come to the end of themselves, they're completely given over to their circumstances at the end. That's when the oil comes out and we anoint them with the oil of gladness. That is the final part of the Messiah through his spirit in the camp. Comforting us, strengthening us, and making us his people. All of the dross is going to be gone. All of the tarnish on who we are will be gone. We will come out clean, shining brightly, pure with the Lord. And part of what will take place is we'll be anointed, and that's the reason why we're called the Oaks of Righteousness. By the way, if you see an oak tree, it's a very stately tree. Very powerful, strong tree. Its roots are as strong as its upper branches are. It's an incredible, strong example. This wood is durable and strong. 
And so making that word picture for us, it says that when we get through with this process, we will stand as examples of God's righteousness and his being his people. And we will endure this. We will survive it. We will escape from all of those things that will be upon the world. And this is part of the Messiah's redemption. This is part of proclaiming the day of his vengeance. So this little passage of scripture that we've read from, uh, from Luke chapter, chapter 4, quite honestly is a mouthful. And when the Messiah equated himself directly to what the prophet had said and called it the favorable year of the Lord when he came, but there's another day coming which will be the day of vengeance. By the way, tying back to our Torah portion, we saw first the instruction of the Sabbath, the counting of the Sabbath years, the favorable year of the Lord. But he also gave the instructions about the Yovel, the Jubilee. Guess what the final restoration is going to be? A year of Jubilee, the redemption of the land, that the Lord will reclaim the land back to him, the promised land that he promised to us that doesn't belong to the world anymore and doesn't belong to those that are not redeemed and don't know the Lord. It will be properly returned to those that are supposed to have it. And that would be God's people, his promised land. So this is a very powerful passage. Luke 4 is really talking to what the prophet Isaiah said, and it does tie back to our Torah portion. So I hope you got a blessing. And I hope your Sabbath is enjoyable and a blessing for you. Shabbat Shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing Shalom
is a gift from God to put a smile upon your face. He's got the whole world in his hands, so obey his commands, and you will know peace. Shalom.